Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast. The number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff. No more vanity metrics. Live from India. Made for the world. Hello and welcome to yet another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. And this is your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how to get better at brand storytelling and differentiating yourself. And to share his decades of experience on this subject, we have with us Mark Evans, who is the founder and principal at Marketing Spark. Mark started his career as a reporter for Bloomberg and currently works with B2B SaaS companies in the capacity of a fractional CMO where he helps them develop compelling brand positioning and messaging. He helps them with their marketing plan and oversees their tactical execution aligned with metrics and milestones. He also runs a brilliant micro podcast called Marketing Spark, which as we like it, cuts to the chase to about 20-25 minutes of meaty marketing conversations without any room for fluff or sweet nothings. Mark, welcome to the show and good to have you on this side of the conversation today. Well, thanks, Yag. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about marketing and storytelling. Yeah, absolutely. It's always fun. And uh, let's get going. You know, every other so-called guru on LinkedIn today is talking about storytelling on LinkedIn, you know, including the ones who use quoting someone else's tweets as a storytelling strategy to improve their engagement. But there are very few people who truly understand that storytelling doesn't mean building up themselves with a rags to riches story or a garage to Silicon Valley story. Stories need to mean something to the audience, you know. The audience needs to feel that it's about them and they need to have a reason to care. Since you consult for businesses of different sizes, I'm sure you've seen this a lot. So I want to start with asking you about what is the biggest struggle that you see companies have in connecting their stories with their audience? It's a great question. And I think storytelling is something that a lot of companies and and people get in general. They understand the concept of storytelling because we all love stories and we all love telling stories. But when it comes to business, the biggest obstacle is that we're very product focused. We love our products. We're focused on selling our products at all times and putting them in the spotlight. And I say this somewhat tongue in cheek, customers don't care about your product. They really don't. They don't care about your technology. They don't care whether it's AI driven or whether it's data driven. What they care about is themselves and how your product is going to benefit them in some way and the experience of using your product. So when it comes to story-driven marketing, it's about the customer, not about you, and it's about their experiences, their needs, their interests. And our jobs as marketers is to craft stories, develop stories that put their interests, their needs into the spotlight so they can envision what it's like to use your product and to enjoy your product. Right. That makes a lot of sense. In fact, you know, something that I, when I looked at your career, something that really piqued me was that in your life prior to marketing leadership roles across enterprises and startups, you had been a reporter for a long time. I would say that that must have had very significant impact on your overall career because one of the finest qualities of a reporter, at least in my view, is having the ability to spot stories, you know, and not just any story, but stories that would be of interest to the readers. So, Tell us a little bit about what makes for a good engaging story. You know, why 
uh, do you think that storytelling is hard for some people and why is it natural for some others? That's an interesting question. So it comes down to a couple of things. And, and obviously one of them, and I just want to reiterate it, is it is about the customer. So think about when you were a child and your parent or your teacher was reading you a story. The story had drama. The story had intrigue. You didn't know what was going to happen next. It was exciting. It was interesting. And it really was about captivating the audience. And the person reading the story was just a delivery mechanism. So it really wasn't about the the person reading the story, but it was about the reactions that they generated and the emotions that they generated. So that's one. And I, and I cannot emphasize the importance of, of serving the needs or the interests of your customers. And the second thing about storytelling, and this is the hardest one, is that storytelling is a mindset. And by that, you have to look at everything around you as a potential story. So the books that you read, the videos that you watch, the websites that you consume, the podcasts that you listen to, there's all there's stories hidden in everything, the people that you talk to or the things that you see. And so you have to stop thinking about them as content and you have to, or information and you have to start thinking, what's the angle here? Like, what's the story that I want to tell? So when I was a reporter, I was a reporter for 15 years. I was always looking at the angle. Like, what is, what is, what is it about that person or this development or this trend that's going to be interesting to my target audience? And that's a hard thing because people aren't trained as storytellers. We understand stories, but seeing, recognizing, and capturing stories takes practice. And that's the one thing that I would emphasize that is the fundamentals of good storytelling. Right, absolutely. And uh, you and I, we are both connected on LinkedIn and uh, we, we engage with each other. So uh, when I look at your LinkedIn, you know, one of your posts caught my eye. You know, you started with a dramatic line that said, uh, differentiate or die. And uh, as much as dramatic it sounds, it's true. You know, you either get watched or you stay watching. And in fact, uh, during the COVID times, one common theme that I kept hearing from some of the leadership folks at certain client companies was something like, hey, uh, we are waiting out to see what our competitor is going to do. How are they going to approach with X, Y, and Z? And not realizing that it was their moment to actually go out and make a difference and stand out. So uh, talk to us a little bit on how do you approach differentiation? You know, Talk to us about differentiation from a storytelling standpoint. What are the factors that go into building a differentiated story? Great question, because I think a lot of companies didn't really think about differentiation before, positioning didn't matter to them. So when the economy is doing really well and, and the rising tide is lifting all ships, what we're focused on is lead generation. And there's a lot of focus on data and MarTech tools. So a lot of marketers, I think, got lazy as they started relying on technology and automation and just generating tons of content to do their marketing. And they stopped focusing on differentiation and how they could stand out from the crowd. Because when everybody's doing well, it doesn't matter if you stand out. Well, theoretically, right? Because everybody's doing well. But when times get tough, so when COVID emerged and it wasn't a level playing field anymore and that we all couldn't go to conferences, being different matters more than ever. And this is something I've been rallying for years. And sometimes it feels like Don Quixote, right? You're, you're, you're tilting against windmills and you're doing your best to rally people around storytelling and differentiation and no one's listening to you because they don't care. It's not important to them. But now they care. <laughs> right. 
a differentiated message and a and a different story matters because when you when you really boil it down, Yag, I mean, every company, every SaaS company, for example, has hundreds of competitors. They have the same products, they have the same features, pretty much the same prices. So how are you different? And if you can't differentiate yourself even in a small way, then you're not gonna, you know, emerge from the pack. You're gonna be just like everybody else. And even if you have great marketing uh, and great salespeople, it may not matter. So, you know, one of the keys is you you have to tell a different story that emphasizes your strengths, even if those those differences are really, really small, being different matters. And it's the way that you uh, emerge as as a potential option. And that's the key is you want to be seen as an option as, a, as opposed to not being seen at all. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe, you know, it would be great if you can um, give me an example as to uh, maybe a step-by-step perspective of how you went about differentiating a product from a similar looking competition. Like, uh, you know, some of the customers without naming them, if you can take us through a particular case. So one of the first things you need to do when you're trying to position a company is really talk to internal stakeholders to learn about the company and their product and what they think makes the product different or better or unique. And you've got to get it from different angles. So it just can't be the founder or the CEO. It's got to be the marketing person and sales, customer service, um, customer success. So you're getting different perspectives because everybody's got a different slant on things. Not everybody sees the world in the same way. The second step would be obviously talking to customers. Like, how do you think this company is different or better? Because they'll give you, they have, a, they have their own biases and they'll give you angles and opinions that you may not even have thought about because you're so focused as a company on what makes you different or what you're doing is that in many cases, you take your customers for granted and you're not thinking about what it's like to be in their shoes. And I would say, and I would argue that one of the biggest mistakes a lot of companies make is they don't talk to their customers enough, if at all. Absolutely. They get a customer, they're in the fold, they're fat and happy, it's all good. Now we're on to focusing and and getting more leads and and prospects. So you really got to talk to your customers. and, And the important thing is to talk to different types of customers, new customers, uh, long-time customers, customers that you think aren't entirely happy, customers that love you because they'll all tell you different things. And then the third part of this sort of positioning triangle is to look at the competition and to get and to drill down into what are the stories that they tell? What are the things that they rally around that make them different or unique? Like what are the things that they try to use to excite and attract prospects and customers? And you've got to put that all together to come up with themes and ideas that you can rally around, things that are going to make you stand out from the crowd. And that's, that's, a, that's a very intense exercise because it takes a lot of information that you've, you've got to boil down to come up with the essence of differentiation. And I'm going through an exercise like this right now with a client and they make billing software. And that's a very competitive space because think about the subscription economy and how many other suppliers are out there providing the same kind of billing services. And my job is to help this company identify what makes it different. And it's really hard because its technology isn't that unique or innovative, but there's something about it that we're trying to leverage to outflank the competition. And in our case, what it's going to be probably is the idea that it's 
It's technology, it's a platform, but you can customize it to your needs. So it's not a one size fits all proposition where, you know, plug in your APIs and you're good to go. It's actually real customization that you can, and that you can get from enterprise companies, but this is an enterprise company, right? They're doesn't cost you the same as being an enterprise company, but it's taken us a long time to get there. Um, and the one thing I'd emphasize about differentiation is it it often is a is a journey that you've got to go on, and it's not clear immediately. Sometimes it takes a lot of time and a lot of conversations. And one thing you might discover along the way is you'll be working away, working away, and you'll talk to one customer and they'll say one thing, and then you've got your you've got your thing, like. The puzzle is silent is finally been solved and you're on your way. But you got to put the work in sometimes. Right. And that's the hard part about about differentiation. Right. That makes total sense. You know, it's it's just that one thing that spark comes from somewhere and suddenly everything takes off. I totally agree with you. Right. And uh, another common thing that uh, you and I have is that we both love startups and contributing to the journeys of uh, founders and startups. And uh, when you are part of a startup journey, even if as an external contributor, it's obvious in no time whether you're adding value or not. And when I look at what your customers say about you, Mark, you know, one thing that comes across more often than not is that Mark took our vision and value proposition and then built a core messaging document for us that we could use to build our marketing collaterals. This, this is what people keep saying. And essentially, it what it means to me is that your game is very clear for you. You know, you're there to plug in, build a blueprint, set things up and then plug out. So help us understand, like, how do you go about building that core messaging document that organizations use to align their marketing language? I mean, what does the document typically contain and what are your sources of insights there? So it's not unlike the process that I talked about in terms of that that differentiation positioning triangle. So you're, you talk to the company, you talk to the customers, you look at the competitive landscape. And my job, and it, it really comes back to my days as a reporter, where I took in a lot of information, a lot of interviews, and tried to come up with a very succinct story to write at the time for a newspaper. It's the same kind of process. You're really trying to identify the, the main themes or the main story that's going to resonate with the people that matter, who can be your customers or investors or partners or employees. And the biggest the biggest part of what I do is really take all those information inputs um, all the different angles, you know, all the different uh, types of um, insights and really come up with a theme. And, and you've kind of, you're trying to develop the story. And then the document consists of the positioning statements, the value propositions, uh, the strategic narrative, uh, a boilerplate. And then what you're also trying to do is provide some context about this is your story. But this is how it compares to all the other stories told by your competitors so that you've got this 360 degree view of the messaging storytelling world that a company then can look at and go, okay, now we know what our story is and we know what everybody else's is. Now we can go and tell our story. But I would say there's the biggest problem with, with differentiation and positioning exercises is that they collect dust. So you create this great document. It looks really good, but no one uses it. <laughs> and there's two things that need to happen. One is that an organization needs to buy into the positioning that you've created. They really got to believe it. Like they can't say, okay, well, we've paid, we've paid Mark a consulting fee to come and figure out our message and he's done his job and this is, and this is the document and, and we're happy with it because you don't believe in it. If you don't, if it doesn't reflect 
how you see the world and how you want to go forward, you won't use it and it won't become part of your everyday language. So that's one thing. And the second part is that if you get buy-in and people are excited about the story, then you've got to what I it's called go through a step called pollination, where you take the key elements of your positioning and then you start to integrate it into your marketing and sales, into your decks, into your elevator pitch, into your about page, into your social media profile. So it that story appears everywhere. And so when you're talking to prospects, you tell the story, you parrot the the value propositions, you use your strategic narrative, and it becomes part of your corporate DNA. That's when positioning pays off and that you get bang for the buck. If you go through a positioning exercise and lots and lots of companies do it, and all it is is a document that sits in your in your in your Google Drive, then you've you've wasted your money, and that's that's a sad uh, reality for too many companies. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing because uh, you know I've seen this happen in so many places. Uh, I've seen a lot of agents come from outside, do a big exercise, and then uh, there is a big town hall meetup, and they say that this is going to be our new messaging, and everybody claps, and that's it. Everybody forgets about what happens from there. But, you know, one key question here is that um, when you do this uh, document, do you also talk about what should be the tone of the organization? Like, what is the kind of tonality we are going to use? What are we not going to say? Like, what are, what are we going to refrain from and things like that? Yeah, part of it is is essentially come up with a brand personality. So what what's the language that you're going to use? So some brands are going to be bold and aggressive. Some are going to be somewhat irreverent or cheeky. Some are going to be very formal. It depends on the target audiences and what is the language of business? Like, how do they expect you to behave? How do they expect you to talk? So tone is really important. Um, and the one thing about about positioning is you're right, is that it's as much about what you're going to say as a, about what you're not going to say. And what a positioning exercise will do is establish your corporate narrative. It allows everyone to know this is the way that we describe ourselves. These are the benefits that we highlight these are the things that we do for our customers so that there's no variations on a theme. Like no one's going, no one's going rogue and telling their own story. Because what you might find in a lot of organizations is that the marketing people will tell a certain story and the salespeople will tell an entirely different story because that's the story that they think they need to tell. And there's no common theme happening. And so what happens is your story gets confusing and incoherent and inconsistent. And then you've got a messaging problem. You've got a marketing problem because prospects and customers are hearing different stories and they just don't know what to believe after a while or they're confused. Right, right. And uh, maybe let's let's also talk about messaging for a specific kind of an audience. You know, let's let's focus on that. Let's say, for example, you're helping out a SaaS product company. So when you go about messaging, like who's your messaging for, you know, do you target the users of the software or do you usually go about targeting the decision makers? Who are you talking to? That's an excellent question because within target audiences, there are different people that you need to talk to. So you're right. At, for decision makers, you think about what they're interested in. And in many cases, it's about ROI, profitability, productivity, making their employees more efficient. And there's a story that you need to tell that's all about their needs and their interests. So again, we go back to, you know, what what's going to resonate with them? What's going to make them envision the experience that your that your product is going to deliver for them? So that's one story that you need to tell. The other story is for users. So in many cases, the 
person buying the product is not the person who is actually using it on a day-to-day basis. So you're going to have to create marketing collateral and stories about what is like the problems that you're solving specifically for that target audience. But I would say that what messaging does, it really establishes sort of the overhanging story, the thing that what you do, who you serve, how you're different and the benefits. And that's the overhanging story. And what you then do is you take variations on the theme for different types of audiences. But positioning gives you that that story that is consistent at all times and really guides people in terms of the other audiences that they have to cater to. And that's the value of positioning. It really does give you that that place to start. And then once you're there, then you can craft stories to specific audiences and whether they're decision makers or whether they're the people in the trenches. Right, right. And sometimes, you know, your product itself, uh, when you've looked back at some history, you you naturally know that whether it makes more sense to spend time on the users or whether it's the decision makers, because yeah, it, it totally, uh, you know, depends on the pricing or who makes the decisions and if they are also the users or not. Totally with you on that. Right. So that brings us to the second section of our podcast, which we call the rapid fire section. So the idea of this section is to uh, shoot uh, five lightning questions at you. And uh, I'll try my best to put you on the spot and see how it goes from there. So there's no rules at all. Like the questions may be short, but you can uh, talk whatever comes to your mind. So are you ready for that? I am ready. Fire away. All right. So here's question number one. When you see a product company that shows a huge pricing difference between monthly and annual packages, what's your immediate reaction? Skepticism. I think it's. I think in some cases it's misleading because you're setting expectations for one price and then you surprise people when you offer them the month price. And I'm just not a believer in that kind of strategy. It's very self-serving in some respects because it's the company that is getting the benefits. They're the ones that want to lock you in, whereas it should be about the user and what's what's going to be right for them. And I understand the economics at play. I just sometimes think it's a very misleading to do marketing. Right. That makes sense. It's also a breach of trust in many ways, if you say. Yeah. I mean, that you're right. I mean, in many cases, what business comes down to is do you trust a supplier or a person or and do you like them? And when you're setting that kind of expectation from the beginning when you surprise people and not necessarily in a in a good way it's going to put people back on their heels and they may want to do business with a company that doesn't do that and so you only get so many chances to make a good first impression and if people feel like you're misleading them or not serving them in the right way in whatever way whether it's pricing or however you serve them then there's too many options out there and and when you're have a competitive landscape like that. You just can't afford to make mistakes like having big differences in pricing. Right. Absolutely. Love that. And here's question number two. This is going to be very simple. I I think I can almost guess your answer. So is it going to be LinkedIn or Clubhouse? What's your choice and why? Oh, I love that question because it's been so interesting to watch the hardcore LinkedIn people jump on the Clubhouse bandwagon. And and you got to think about this way. Clubhouse is a brilliant marketing organization. So two months ago, you know, they've got a bunch of users, but two months ago, they opened the gates to people like you and me and a bunch of other sort of LinkedIn marketers who are super active on the platform. Right. That 
was a brilliant move. And all because all of a sudden we got super excited because we like being first, right? We like being seen as market leaders. And there was so much enthusiasm. And, and as I think you and I are in the same camp, we got we spent a lot of time on Clubhouse. We explored it. We started rooms. We were guests. And then the enthusiasm disappeared as you realized <laughs> yes. how much effort it takes and work. And Clubhouse is far from perfect right now as far as you know the way that it, it allows you to consume content and the amount of investment it takes. And so it's kind of like having a lever. And I hate to use this analogy, but you it, but you get in trouble if you have more than one lever. You know, <laughs> you got to really be passionate about one thing. And I think splitting your splitting your passions is a really tough thing to do. So for me, it's all LinkedIn all the time. I uh, wrote a post this morning talking about the ROI that LinkedIn has delivered to me over the past year, the connections, the conversations, the insights. And I can't spend that much time on Clubhouse. I just won't do it because I just feel like it'll take away from what I do on LinkedIn. And I think there's a, a lesson to be had for a lot of you know B2B SaaS companies is that you pick the channel that works really well for you. There are other channels that will tempt you, but you really got to focus on on the idea that less is more and that if you can pick a channel that is successful and delivers, then stay with that channel. Not to say you can't explore new channels, but you just got to stick to the person who you you brought to the dance, right? I mean, so tempting, but yeah, I'm a club, I'm a LinkedIn person all the way. I love your analogies. And by the way, you know, uh, I'm also like you, you know, because I've, I've used pretty much every platform, every social platform on the way. And I finally found that and nothing gives me returns as much as LinkedIn has done. So yeah, I'm, I totally get your point. But my question to you is, yeah. do you still dabble with Clubhouse? I mean, how do you use it? Because I am I host a room every week. I, I bounce in and out, but I don't spend much time there. What about yourself? Right, same thing. You know, I, I uh, come to Clubhouse probably just uh, once a week to uh, see if I'm missing anything. But I find that I, I'm really not. And once in a while, if I have to use that as a distribution channel, I do that. But I really uh, don't spend much time these days. You know, it's, it's like I don't find anything different. And the set of rooms that show up on my uh, on my wall is very, very irrelevant. And the moment I look at some of them and I see that, uh, you know, uh, billion dollar related conversations, I'm like, no, this is not for me. Is there any FOMO? Do you feel like you're missing out if you're not on Clubhouse? Because I think a lot of people, that is a big thing for a lot of people is that you're missing out because they look at TikTok like, a year ago, B2B marketers, we blew off TikTok. It's for teenagers, it's for dance videos, it's for goofy videos. And now TikTok has emerged as a legitimate and vibrant B2B platform. And I think a lot of people looked at Clubhouse and said, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm going to get on Clubhouse. I'm going to go hard because I do not want to miss out on this opportunity. What do you think of that idea? I also speak to uh, some of the people who are hardcore users of Clubhouse and uh, people who have got their own clubs and all of that. And uh, they tell me that uh, they've got a lot out of it. But at the end of the day, what I see is that it, it does take a lot of time. You know, uh, I don't have about um, three to four hours that I could spend every day. Uh, so it, it really does not make sense. At this point, my priorities, uh, you know, are far more focused on delivering my work and also related to LinkedIn and things like that, because there I can clearly attribute what I'm getting out of it. But with Clubhouse, maybe the only big thing that happened or probably the biggest thing that happened to me on Clubhouse was that uh, I was able to get Guy Kawasaki on my podcast. So that was one big return I got from Clubhouse. Yeah. I think that if I if you had to ask me what my prediction would be for Clubhouse, I have to believe it's going to be sold. At some point in time, somebody's going to step up and they're going to Look at the 10 million users that Clubhouse has so far and extrapolate what's going to happen going forward. And even though Clubhouse doesn't have a revenue stream right now, someone will pay a lot of money 
for that user base. And in many respects, it may not be unlike what happened to Instagram when Facebook bought it for a billion dollars. You know, they only had 10 employees. They were making, you know, it wasn't a big revenue generation machine right then, but Facebook saw the user base, saw the growth and decided, you know what, this thing's worth a billion dollars. We're going to buy it. And as it turned out, it turned out to be a very, very savvy acquisition. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think Clubhouse uh, is going that way. But yes, I also see that there's a good possibility that uh, one of the uh, one of the powerhouses might eventually acquire uh, Clubhouse. I don't know which one, but a lot of people are already showing interest, which is what I hear, but I'm not sure. All right, so I'm going to move on to uh, question number three of the rapid fire section. Would you recommend your customers to sponsor a virtual event? Yes or no? And why or why not? I would say no. I just don't think that virtual events have the engagement and interactivity that justifies spending money on sponsorships. When you think about sponsorships in the real world, when people are going to in-person events, sponsorships are all about conversations. It's all about getting people to come to your booth or wandering around the conference and finding people who are interested in the kind of products that you're selling, going to talks. And it's the spontaneity and the serendipity of interacting with people and having good conversations. That's the key to sponsorships. In the virtual world, I just don't think that happens. And I just don't think there are enough opportunities to justify the investment. And I know there are platforms like Hopin that are trying to make virtual conferences more engaging and and more like in-person events. But I just don't see that happening from a financial perspective. I just think that sponsorships are, it's hard to justify a sponsorship period when you're in the real world. And I just don't think it's going to happen in the virtual world. That's my take. I could be wrong because people are sponsoring events, but it's really hard to stand up from the crowd and really get people to pay attention to you and your brand. Right, right. I think, uh, you know, if you and I were discussing this in the same room, probably we would be high-fiving a couple of times because we both think alike. And uh, in fact, I did try um, Hopin a couple of years back when uh, I think Saster tried using Hopin for one of their uh, events. And uh, I really didn't find it to be anything close to uh, a real-time event that I have been. So it's still like a webinar on steroids. That's it. Yeah, there was a company called Clio. They're a Toronto-based company that does legal software. And they put on a virtual conference, their annual conference was put online and they had about 4,000 attendees there. And they had a sponsor who managed to figure out a way to send people swag virtually. So you could go to their virtual booth and you could order swag from them, or you could ask for swag. And they managed to do something really creative. And I thought, well, that's great. And I actually did post it on LinkedIn, but that's an anomaly. That's few and far between. I mean, there are just so few examples of sponsors actually getting ROI that I just can't see it gaining traction. I mean, it's a great way for companies to connect with prospects and customers, but I just don't see what's in it for sponsors. Right, right. That makes sense. All right. So moving on to uh, question number four, I know that one of your favorite quotes comes from uh, Seth Godin, which goes like, your story doesn't have to be a book. It's simply your chance to make a difference. So what's your best action inspired by that quote? I think that we get lost in the idea that more marketing is better. Over the past year, a lot of brands have become publishers and they've pumped out a lot of content. It's the idea that if you 
pound away long enough and hard enough that prospects are going to turn into customers. It's the idea that it's quantity over quality. And my takeaway is that customers are overwhelmed. Prospects are overwhelmed. There's just too much information out there. And that as marketers, we need to think strategically and creatively to capture the spotlight. We need to do things that are surprising, interesting, extremely customer-centric, and that show a prospect that we're thinking about the world differently, or more important, we're thinking about them and what their needs are and their interests. And so it comes down to doing the right things for the right reasons at the right time, aimed at the right people. Um, that's the essence of really good marketing. And I think a lot of a lot of brands really have to back off on the idea that if they send more email, they write more content, they do more advertising, that's going to make them successful. <laughs> right, right, totally. Right, and here's the final question. If there is someone that you think is a great storyteller that all B2B marketers need to learn from, uh, who would be that? You know, you could probably uh, give a shout out to a couple of people or maybe more, you know, whoever comes to your mind. Well, in terms of individuals, I would say someone like David Cancel from Drift is probably one of the preeminent storytellers in the world, or at least one of the people who advocates the most effectively for the power of storytelling. Because going back to your original question is that storytelling is a very sexy, compelling topic, but it's hard to show people how to embrace it and why to embrace it. So I think uh, David has done a really great job of making storytelling an inherent part of Drift's DNA, but at the same time becoming an evangelist, a very powerful evangelist for brand storytelling. So that's somebody that people should follow, subscribe to his newsletter and, and, his, and his LinkedIn post. And I would say, as far as storytelling on the corporate side, I mean, I always refer to a company like Airbnb as being the preeminent storyteller out there because you know one of the things about storytelling is as we talked about, it's it's about experiences. It's not about the product or the technology. So you think about it, Airbnb is a very efficient online platform to book places to stay around the world. I mean, at the at, when you boil it down to, it's not any different than Booking.com or you know any of the other online uh, booking uh, products. But what makes Airbnb so successful and allows them to do be so good at marketing is that it's about storytelling and experiences. So Airbnb really, really is about uh, the sense that you can belong any, anywhere, that you can experience new people and new places. And their marketing is all about though, reflecting those experiences. So the magazines that they publish, the ads that they do, the videos that they create, they're all stories about either travelers who are experiencing these new and amazing things or hosts who are meeting all these amazing people. And that's the essence of their marketing. It's not about the product at all. And they never talk about the product because the product doesn't matter to the people that they're going after. So I would say those are two really good examples of storytelling that and storytellers who um, who really stand out from the crowd. Right, right. In fact, uh, the moment you think of uh, Airbnb or thinking about experience, you know, it's it's not like booking anymore. It's it's not like uh, a timer hanging on you, but it's about uh, going and connecting with uh, probably somebody's house and then, you know, staying with them and uh, getting that experience. And similarly with David Cancel, I'm a huge fan myself because I know they came into a time where Intercom was already big and uh, the only difference that they could do with uh, in terms of having a very similar product is completely have a different story. 
and they did you know the moment you think of intercom you're thinking of uh, customer support and customer engagement and the moment uh, these guys came up with something called uh, conversational marketing that was a game changer i absolutely love those two examples yeah and it's interesting that you mentioned intercom because intercom is a great storytelling company and i think one of the reasons why they do so well at it is that their the head of marketing is a former journalist so he's used to telling stories thinking about stories you know embedding stories into everything and so when you think about the way that drift emerged on the scene not only did they have to become good storytellers but they had to tell their own distinct story. And conversational marketing is marketing brilliance. I mean, you look at what David Cancel and, and Dave Gerhardt did when they came up with that concept. I mean, that's a way that you position yourself as different from every other company out there. And they they created that and they owned it and then they built storytelling around it. And if you had to, you know, now that we sort of, you know, touched upon it, I mean, that's that's great storytelling in action in all different kinds of ways. Absolutely. And uh, now we are coming towards uh, the end of our show. And before we wrap this up, uh, you know, for our listeners, if you have a parting message that you would like to share, uh, please go ahead and do that. Well, I would say that positioning matters more than ever. Differentiation matters more than ever, because I think we've got another year of really interesting, a really interesting marketing landscape. I do not think the conferences are going to come back until late 2021 or early 2022. So your marketing, your digital marketing needs to stand up from the crowd. It needs to be creative. It needs to be different. It needs to be better. It needs to be unique. And I believe that storytelling is a huge pillar that you can leverage if you can understand what it is, why it matters, and how to implement it. So that would be my my takeaway message. And the other thing would be that I still believe that quality matters. Quality versus quantity, I'm always going to go with quality. And that the best brands tell the best stories, whether it's video or infographic, um, podcasts, you know, websites, whatever it is, is that if you do things really well, it makes a difference. It matters. Right. And uh, if the listeners of the podcast want to uh, connect with you, um, where can they connect and uh, what are the best reasons for uh, connecting with you and what could you help them with? So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm like you, I'm very active. It's been a great platform to build brand and share insight. My website is marketingspark.co. I also have a, a podcast also called Marketing Spark. It's a weekly podcast. And in terms of the type of customers I work with, they're B2B SaaS companies. They're doing a little bit of marketing or not very much marketing, and they need someone to essentially help them move forward, help them figure out you know, what is their story? You know, what channels should they be leveraging? Who matters to them? And then somebody who can help them move forward tactically. And so it's, it really is, if I had to boil it down, I really help companies do marketing right so that they're focused on the right people and the right channels and as important, help them avoid mistakes. That's sort of the essence of what I do. Absolutely love that. And uh, thank you so much, Mark, for uh, joining us on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure having you. And for the listeners of the podcast, that's that from us. And until we connect with you the next week with another guest and probably another very interesting topic, have a great day and it's goodbye from me, Yag. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you. 